you have your Bibles, open up to John 14. We'll be in John 14 today, looking at verses 1 through 6. John 14, 1 through 6. Before we begin, will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We are grateful to be here. Thank you for the worship we've already been able to enjoy. But Lord, it's more than just the enjoyment of being together. Lord, it's, the, it's really a weight that we are worshiping the God of the universe. So Lord, now as we turn our attention to worshiping you through your word, God, I pray that you would guide us in our study. Help us to see you rightly. Lord, this is your word. This is your revelation of yourself to us. It is your diary to us. So Lord, help us to see you rightly through it. I pray that you would go before now, uh, go before me. And at this moment, God, I pray that if I say anything today that is just merely my human opinion, let that be forgotten. But Lord, let your word be remembered. And may it change us more like your son. For Lord, he's our standard, and we just want to just submit to him in everything we do. And we pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. We're going to be looking at John 14, 1 through 6 today. And as I was looking at this passage over the last two weeks, um, getting ready for this, this message, when I first saw that Pastor Kivett, he had texted me and said, hey, would you preach uh, for this Sunday? And it's going to be on John 14, 1 through 6. My first instinct, confession time, was like, hey, I know that passage. I got this. You ever had those moments? We're like, oh, I got this. I've heard this a thousand times. I know it. It's probably one of the most well-taught, frequently taught passages in, in all of Scripture, probably after John 3.16, which a lot of people go to oftentimes. So I was looking at that thinking, I had a little bit of comfort going, okay, yeah, I can, I can dig through that. And as I started digging, here's what happened. Uh, it was kind of a perfect storm of a lot of things going on in my life and my own personal study. As I started looking at John 14, I started seeing things I never caught on to before. And you've, you've had that happen to you before a thousand times, I'm sure. Whereas you studied God's word, you're seeing, oh, I didn't, even, I didn't see that before. How did I miss that the first couple times? One thing I did differently was I read the text out of a reader's Bible. Now, this is why I brought it with me today. Um, I am going to make a quick commercial. Uh, we don't offer these. We don't even have a bookstore, and I'm not giving you mine. But this is a good version of gifts. ESV, Reader's Bible of the Gospels. What it does is it takes out the chapters and verses. It gives you the titles so you know where things are, um, but it takes out chapters and verses so that you can't lose the flow of the, the writing that's, that's been given to you. And so I took the passage of this week in John 14, and I looked at it in its, in its context. And I, I didn't take it away uh, from the rest of the Bible. I actually invested and looked into it and as I was reading, I started thinking, well, i got to go back a little further because he's saying some things here that he's referring back to. So as I went back a little further, I'm saying, well, i got to go back a little further because he made a reference here. I found myself all the way back into John 12. And as I was reading through this, I want to set that stage for you here today. Okay? Now, as we're looking at this context, the first thing we need to remember is that the purpose of John's gospel, the one that we're studying and we have been studying for the last few weeks, looking at the seven I Am statements, the purpose of John's gospel is found in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. It's going to be on the screen here. Here's what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So he tells you right away, Jesus did a lot more things than what I'm telling you. But these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's the idea. Finding life in Christ is the key to understanding this gospel and everything in it. Everything that John's going to give you, 
whether it's a miracle or a teaching or Jesus' interaction with his own disciples was meant for the goal that you, the reader, would believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name through your belief in him. There it is. He makes no bones about it. He's going to give you his agenda right away. So when we look at the text, we have to keep in mind that's where he's trying to go. Now, in John's letters, in his Gospels and his 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he frequently marries two ideas together. Pastor Kivett shared this with you a couple weeks ago. He oftentimes, John does, is marry the idea of this present life and this the future eternal life. So I talk a lot with my hands, and now you're going to see it the rest of the sermon, so might as well go and tell you, here's what I'm going to do. Over here is the present life. So when I reference over here, I'm talking about this present life, uh, and, and Pastor Kivett gave you a word for that a couple, years, a couple weeks ago, bios, bios, okay? Over here, over here, the eternal life, what he called Zoe, all right? You see those two. So you have the present life and the eternal life. Let's practice. What are my folks on here? What's over here? Okay, so here's the thing. John frequently in his, his uh, letters, his gospels, his writings, puts these two together. The danger is that we often divorce them. We, we separate them. And we almost have a, a philosophy that the ancient Greeks had, that you had this life, but it, did, it didn't really matter. What really mattered was the future life. But John steps in and goes, actually, it's the same. They're together in this. See, John uses that term for eternal life 32 times in his gospel, 10 in his letter to 1 John. It's only used 127 times in the whole New Testament, and John takes about 42 of them, so he uses it 33% of the time. Now, you're like, well, that's a lot of stats, Clonard. Why are you telling me this? The things we talk about the most are the most important to us. Agree? If people get around you and all you do is talk about the sports team that you pull for, people know you're a sports fan. If you talk, if husbands, if all you do is talk about your wife, you better, they're going to think, man, this guy's happily married. If all you talk about is your kids, they're going to think you love your kids. What we talk about shows where our heart is. Now, see, the context of John 14 that, I, that we're going to look at here in just a second is the final supper that Jesus is having with these men who are going to become his closest confidants. Now, before we go any further, let's read together John 14, 1 through 6. Now, when I say read together, let me read it, and you just read along with me, because I want you to see some things in it you may not have noticed. Jesus says this in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there, that line, the context is at that last supper. Now, you may have already understood this. I'm just telling you where God took me these last two weeks. I've always read this passage. I've taught this passage. But it never clicked to me that he's still sitting at the table. You know? I kind of pictured him off somewhere, like on a mountain, like in all those paintings you see, and everybody's just looking up at him. He's always dressed in white. His skin's always clean. They're always looking dirty. You've seen those paintings too. 
I never caught on that he's still sitting at the table. What happened before this? Judas just went out to betray him. And I love that scene. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all start going, who? Who's it going to be, Lord? And Jesus actually spells it out. He says, okay, I'll tell you who it's going to be. I'm going to dip some bread into some, some wine here, and I'm going to give it to the person who's going to betray me. And he doesn't, hands it to Judas, looks at Judas, says, what are you going to, whatever you're doing, do it quickly. And Judas leaves. And after he leaves, the disciples say, okay, Jesus, who's it going to be? Did you ever notice that? I thought, who is it? Like, did you, they never thought Judas. They were more thinking about themselves. Is it me? Would it be me? And so as we keep going further here, we're seeing this concept here. Jesus is now telling his disciples in this passage that he's about to leave their presence. He's telling them, I'm going away. And these disciples are stricken by fear with this. They're shaken by this. They're stricken with fear over the thought of being without him. He's been with them for three years. They, they travel together. They're teaching. All, he's always teaching them. He's encouraging them. There's, there's a friendship that's bonded together with this man, and now they're stricken with the fear over the fact that he might be gone. Now, if you go a little bit further, I'm going to read this passage for you. In chapter 13, verse 36, Peter responds with, to this fear with an overreaction. All right, here's what he does. Simon Peter, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow afterward." Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Overreaction. You're like, well, I think he would have done it. No, we know later he doesn't, right? When when the people show up, what happens to Peter? He takes off. Now, he fights a bit, but realizes he's he's outnumbered. He goes. So he he responds with overreaction. Thomas is later, as we read earlier, going to respond with despair. Thomas answers, look what he says, Lord, verse four, chapter 14, verse 5, Lord, we do not where you're, where, know where you're going. How can we know the way? We don't know. We don't even know. And see, all of these men are experiencing fear over the possible loss of their master. And you know what? Fear can be debilitating. Now, I don't want to come in here, and I, I thought I would share, like, what are you afraid of? Because then we're going to find out what people are afraid of, and then you're going to start messing with me. I know how this works. I spoke at camp one year, and I shared how I was afraid of snakes. And I say, I don't care. You're like, are you afraid of snakes? Yes. And I just told you and the people listening at home. But if I find a snake in my office, church discipline will happen. Because <laughs> I will find out. I remember this kid. I told him, told him at camp I was afraid of snakes. And as I was walking out, some little kid goes up. She had a rubber snake. I don't know why you sell these at camp. What were you thinking? All right. And she goes, look what I found. And I was like, ah. And I didn't say a bad word, but it almost came out. And I about kicked this little girl. <laughs> I don't like them. You're like, well, they're okay. some of you are afraid of spiders. I don't get that. You can step on that. You step on a snake, it just wraps itself up. See, I'm about to throw up thinking about it. <laughs> See, I don't want to do that. I want you to share your fears. Because some of you guys will get real fear in here. But, but think about it for a minute. Fear is debilitating. I remember being on a bike ride one time with a friend of mine. And he went in front of me. And I saw a snake come out of the woods. And, go, and, do, and I was getting ready to run across it. So my response... I stuck my legs up, ran over it, boom, 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 ditched my bike, went over the field and threw up. Not even, I just couldn't help it. I just had a mental image that the snake was in my spokes. I think I burned the bike and walked home. I don't even know what happened. But fear can be debilitating. Now, that was a, not to me, but it's kind of a laughing fear. But it can cause people to refrain from acting in the way they know to be right. Have you ever caught yourself? 
You're like, you're, you're acting because of your fear. You're acting away. I, I shouldn't be acting this way. It can lead to emotional, unthought-out responses. Fear can often cause us to miss something important. Now, I'm going to start a story here. I'm going to finish it later. But I remember a time, this was, I was in second grade, a long time ago. And I remember my elementary school was hosting a, a fall festival and they had decided to do, to raise money, they were going to put a haunted house on campus. And they took, the, they took two classrooms that were joined together and they made it into a haunted house. And the teachers were, and the principals were being all the scary people in it. And, and I remember my friends, I was, I was two years, you know, I was second grade, okay? So some of my friends were going to go do it. They're like, Rick, you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm with my parents. I mean, we're all dressed up. I'm dressed up like, this was back in the 80s, so He-Man was big. And I'm dressed up like Skeletor looking really legit, Okay. Skeletal reference, Google it, kids later, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Now, so I'm going in, and my friends are going in. I'm, I'm all confident. By the way, there was a girl there. She was in a third grade. She was a little older. I was showing interest already. She's going in. I got to go in. They open the door. It's all dark, and all I hear is, Rrr! and that's basically what it was. And all of a sudden, my confidence was gone. I'm like, nope, no, there might be snakes in there. Not going to go. And I remember my dad's there, and my dad, he kind of looked over. He knew. He saw fear through Skeletor's eyes. And he just reached out his hand. And I grab it. You see, fear can cause us to, to really see things differently and not see things rightly. For these men, the fear of what was to come was shaking them. They had no idea what life was going to be like without their master, their teacher, their rabbi, Jesus. And in seeking to comfort them, he reassures them that he's going to return for them. Let's, look at, let's go through this passage. First, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. He says that. What's really neat about this word, let me nerd for a moment. That, that word there for troubled is the same word that Jesus describes his own state in John chapter 11, verse 33. I'm going to read that for you. It says this, when Jesus saw her weeping, we're talking about this is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had also come with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In John 12, 27 through 28, he says this, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There he's saying, I'm, I'm experiencing, the, the, my soul is troubled over what I know I'm going to go through. And then John 13, 21, he says this, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So the same feeling these disciples are feeling over the fact that their master is getting ready to leave. And they don't know how to do life without him. Jesus felt when he made the statement that Judas would betray him. You see, it's fear mingled with, with hurt. Isn't that, thing about, isn't that the thing about fear? You see, we have casual fears, like my casual fear of snakes. That doesn't hurt me emotionally. That's not a fear I have. It's like, oh, that's going to hurt me emotionally. But I have emotional fear hurts. You ready? I fear being a good father. I fear not being a good father. Because that's going to cause emotional baggage too, isn't it? I fear not teaching God's word well. I'll be honest with you guys, this week I've been wrestling with this passage. I've been, I've been not living in fear of 
teaching you. You're my friends, but I've been, Lord, I want to do this well because there is some weight that this carries. And I'll be honest with you, anybody gets up here confident and cocky, doesn't need to be up here. I have fear over the future. I'm, I'm two years away from handing a set of car keys over to a teenager. And I'm terrified. Not for him. I'm going to do like the my line my dad used to use. He used to say, son, I, I don't worry about you. It's those other idiots I worry about. But he used to say other idiots. I'm like, well, that, I know language, dad. I know what you're saying here. You see, those are fears I have because there's baggage with them. You see, I, if I find a snake in the yard, I just never go out in the yard again and sell my house. But with this fear, I, I can't fail. And that's the, that's the fear of the word here. Let me put the, the idea behind this word, used from the various ways it's used, has to do with extreme emotional distress. Let me try to put it this way. Let me, let me try to put you all here. The job that's getting your family by from month to month is in jeopardy of being lost. Now you're experiencing emotional distress. You're waiting on news from the doctor that has the potential of being the most dreaded news you're ever going to get. Now you're in emotional distress. That thing you want more than anything else is apparently out of your grasp. Now you're in emotional distress. Whatever the scenario may be, it causes anxiety, depression, extreme emotional distress. You can't sleep, you can't eat, your stomach's all in knots. Full-blown panic is just a few moments away. And Jesus here is preparing his disciples for the extreme emotional distress that they're going to experience at his arrest and crucifixion. But look what he gives them. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, one of the things I do when I, I study a text before I, I, I begin to preach it is I look at how this is used and, and what is it saying. And in this, and I won't get into it too much, but those two phrases there, believe, they're used. When you look at them in the Greek language, they can either be translated in two different cases. One as a declarative statement, as in you believe in God, or one as an imperative, as a command, believe in God. You see the two differences? One could be you believe in God, one could be believe in God. And what, what they tell us is the context will help us understand it. And when I've looked at the context of chapter 12, 13, and now 14, here's what the context is. Jesus is saying here simply this, you believe in God, now believe in me. We see what he's doing here? He's encouraging his disciples to trust him as they have trusted God in order to fight this fear. To the Jewish men, belief in God is a second nature as breathing. From the moment of their birth, their entire life is immersed in faith in the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, and the life they have in the covenant. They memorize the law and the prophets. The very first thing you do when you went to school, guys, where's my kids at? First thing you did in school, you memorized the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then you went home. Ladies, you, stayed, you went home and stayed home, and your, your mom taught you how to be a future mom and wife. Young boys, you went back to school, and you memorized the rest of the Old Testament. I'd rather learn how to make bread, honestly, but I'm going with you. But you immersed yourself in memorization of the Law and the Prophets. Number two, worshiping 
daily and weekly in the synagogues, offering sacrifices in the temple, making sure that your children grew up with Yahweh as their God. To the Jewish person, Yahweh was everything. Their object of trust, their object of blessing, their source of life, their source of salvation. Jesus is asking these men to do the same with Him. He is to be their everything, their object of trust, their source of life, their source of blessing, their source of salvation. He's saying, you believe in God, believe in me. Now, the next statement, verses 2 through 3, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take it myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know where I am going. Now, the simplest, best explanation of what he's saying here is this, that the way to presence of, the presence of God is through Christ. Now, that's where most of us, and we would do this often, is we'll stop here. We'll get to that passage and go, there it is. This is Jesus making an exclusive claim, and we'd be right. Jesus is saying, I am the only way to presence with God. There is no other world religion, no other practice can do this. It's only me. But we want to make sure we're clear in exactly what he's saying here. Because we've been singing some worship songs today, and that last song was very pointed. We we sang it on purpose. No list of sins I have not done. I love that, last, that one line, no list of people I am not like can earn favor with you. See, Jesus isn't just saying here that he is the only way to presence with the Father. He's saying that there's nothing else you can do but be with me to get presence to the Father. He's making a very strong statement here. Thomas answers in fear. Again, like I said earlier, he answers with a, an idea of, of dread and despair. He says, Lord, how do we know where you're going? I'm sorry, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we even know the way? Jesus, I'm sorry, Thomas speaking for all of them, states that he doesn't even know the way or the where of Jesus' destination. He says, Jesus, you're being kind of vague here. I don't know where you're going. How do I know the way? Thomas' response is one of despair. Fear can cause a, a, a spectrum of responses. How can I know the way if we don't even know where you're going? You might say it this way, God, if I could see where you're headed, if I could see where you're headed with this decision or issue in my life, I would totally trust you. You ever said that? Maybe not verbally, but you said it quietly. Lord, if I could see where you're going, I'm with you. So I've mentioned fear. When I was younger, I had the job of taking out trash in our yard. And we had a backyard and I know my backyard is safe. I spent the whole time of the day back there. But something about darkness makes everything scary. You ever notice it? Prove it. Do you feel scared in this room right now? All right, come back at 3 in the morning. Let's walk through this thing with lights off. You're not going to do it. It's, this place makes weird noises at 3 in the morning. I'm not saying I've been here at 3 in the morning. I'm just saying it's creepy. But darkness has a way of clouding things. So here's me at even all the way young age. Maybe, maybe high school is when I kind of stopped doing this. I just did it quietly. Go outside and take out the trash. I turn on. My dad had put what's called the flood, you know, floodlights that lights up every nook and cranny in the backyard, right? Everything. I flip on those floodlights. You hear you hear them turn on, right? You hear it buzzing. Whatever bug was near there is now fried. And I would walk out with a lot of confidence because I can see everything. I can see everything. 
I throw away the trash, throw away the trash walk back inside. But there was a time, a couple, couple times where the lights were on the, on the off, didn't work. And you take a flashlight with you because it was dark back there. Because I always waited until the end of the night to do it. And I'm walking back there with two big trash cans, look like a creepy Santa Claus with a flashlight. And a flashlight, you could only see what's at your feet. And if you push it, because I was afraid to look up with it, because if I heard a noise and put up, I've always seen those scary movies where I'm putting up and there's somebody there, and I'm gone. Not literally dead, but gone. Like I left, I ran away. Okay? Now, there's a difference between floodlight comfort and flashlight comfort. You, you with me? We want God to turn on the floodlight so many times. I want to see everything. I want to see every angle. I want to see every blade of grass. I want to know exactly what's happening out in this backyard. I want to see everything that's happening in my life. Then I can trust you, Lord. Just let me see. Just turn on the floodlights. When sometimes God goes, I just need you to take the flashlight and trust me step by step. And that's the situation here. Thomas is asking Jesus, will you just turn on the floodlight and let me see what's happening? We often want the floodlight version of God's plan rather than that one step at a time. And look how Jesus answers. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, as I was looking at this, I'm thinking, okay, what does he mean by way, truth, and life? Let me look at this. But then I started realizing something. It's possible that he's, he's using this in a different way. Most people I've looked at study this, they, they see it this way. Most commentators are saying that, that Jesus is speaking this way. The, the word way there is the head noun, I am the way. And that the truth and the life proceed from that first head noun. So it could be this way. Jesus most likely was saying this, I'm the way to true life. You see, I'm the way to true life. And see, Jesus is making the statement this, this idea that through all of this, all the darkness they're seeing, the fear they're having, it's like, look, I'm the way. You're worried about how to get there. I'm the way. I'm the way. Now, see, after his answer, after his answer, Philip makes a bold request. Sometimes we miss this one. We miss this. This is actually in verse 8. Let's read a little further. He requests, Philip requests a, manifesta- a manifestation of God's glory. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Turn, he asked me, turn on the floodlights. It's like he missed it. Turn them on. If you'll turn on floodlights, we're good. We'll see you in your glory. We'll see God's glory. We'll be okay. This is similar to Moses' request in Exodus 33. You remember, let me show that on the screen here. In Exodus 33, verses 12 to 18, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways. Turn on the floodlight that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I love that. If you're not going, I'm not going. That was the, the nonverbal communication I had with my dad that day. They opened up the, the doors, and I heard all the principals and elementary teachers. And, and I looked up at dad. Dad, dad looked up at me, down at me, and it, he saw it in Skeletor's eyes. Dad, I'm not going if you're not going. And he stuck his hand out. You see, 
He says, if I'm not going, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us here. Verse 16, for shall it be known that I have found favor in your, or how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going, is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. I will go with you for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Just kind of sneaks it in there. Show me your glory. Turn on the floodlights. I want to see it. And we know the rest of the story. God hides him in a cleft of a rock and lets him see his back because he can't look on him and live. You see, Philip's request is much like Moses' request. If I can just get a glimpse of God's glory in all that you are, I can follow you anywhere. If you'll just turn on the floodlights, if you'll just show me where you're going, if I can just know what you're doing here, I'll follow you. And Jesus' response puts this entire passage in its proper perspective. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It's like Peter, Jesus leans in a little bit and goes, Philip, I've been here the whole time. Jesus' point is unmistakable. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Jesus' claim here is unity with God of the Old Testament, whom these men grew up learning and worshiping about. Jesus wanted them, and us by extension, to realize that because they trust the Father, they can trust Him since they, the Father and the Son, are united in one purpose. So let me take you back to that story because I bet you want to know what happened to to second grade Rick. So dad reached out and grabbed, took the hand. I grabbed his hand. And I don't know about you, but my dad had a way of doing this, and I've kind of adopted too. My dad had a way of holding my hand, because his hand was so big, in a way where if I let go, he still had it. Like, he, like some kind of little lock with his last three fingers. He, just be able to, he locked the thumb and the pinky. He was good. So we started walking. And I'll, I would love to tell you, nothing scared me. I had my eyes closed the whole time. I have no idea what happened at haunted house. To this day, I have no idea what happened. All right? I remember walking, and I'm just kind of doing this, eyes closed, but nobody could see because I had the skeletal mask on. I was good. I heard people laughing and jumping and screaming, and I heard like, you know, I heard a vampire or whatever, and, my, and the whole time I'm like, oh, I don't know, I'm just trusting dad. He's just kind of, I'm just kind of being pulled by dad. But the whole time he's like, I got this, buddy. I got this. You're good. You're good. He could feel my hand shaking. He's like, you're good. You're good. I know that's not a vampire. That's your principle. I got this. I know it. It's a, bad, it's a bad costume. I got him. Once we got out, everybody's like, that was awesome. I'm like, I know, right? That was great. You guys want to do it again? No, I got to go. I got to go. It's bedtime. It's six. I, I know, it's late. Not going through that again. Dad, look up. Dad looks down at me. I look up. We had this communication. Because here's the thing. You ready? I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. But there was something going on there. It's really unmistakable. You see, in the haunted house, I had no idea where I was going. I just knew that my dad had my hand, and I trusted that he had his eyes open and could see the way. My trust in my dad was built on my understanding of who he is. I'd, nowhere in my history with my dad had he ever led me somewhere dangerous where he did not have me safe. This is the same dad. We'd be outside working out in the yard. We had neighbors, wild dogs that would come into the the backyard and run up to me. 
I would just run up. He'd grab me, put me up real high here. I remember feeling like I was 10 feet tall. I remember times where I was up here, dogs were on my dad right here, trying, sniffing my leg, but my dad was talking to my neighbor like this, and I'm up here like the Statue of Liberty going, you can't get me. Dad, dad had a habit of taking care of me. It was his thing. You see, my trust in my dad was built on my understanding of who he is. For us, we understand God as we spend time in his diary, his word. In it, we discover his heart, his nature, his will. Through it, we get the answer that Philip was seeking as a glimpse of the Father revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. So, what do we learn about, the, about our God from this passage? Number one, ready? Like the disciples, I often let my present fear and desires blind me from true life. The disciples were pursuing a life in the present. They wanted a present, earthly kingdom. It's not that this earthly kingdom was out of God's plan. As a matter of fact, that was coming. But the issue was that in God's plan, there was to be a cross before a crown. We, like the disciples, me, you, habitually turn our attention to things in which we think we will overcome our fears and help us find fulfillment in life. It might be a career. If our fear is not having enough, we make sure we have a career that will bring, bring the money in. It may be relationships. If our fear is loneliness, we make sure we have somebody or people around us. If it's success, we make sure we do whatever it takes to get that success, even if it means crossing lines. If it's popularity, same idea. If it's leaving a legacy, we will ignore the things that need to be done in order to have what we feel like leaves us that legacy. We oftentimes, you and me, will seek to overcome our fears through these things. Number two, like the disciples, I must constantly be reminded of the way of true life. You see, as humans with a limited mind, tainted by sin and understanding, we do not naturally seek anything beyond our present happiness. I don't, you don't. We're often more interested in building our kingdoms, our lives, or avoiding fears based on what we think will work for us and overcome those fears in our life. We answer this way, if I can only get the job I want, find the right person, achieve this or that goal, find peace. If I could just get that, I'll be happy. I'll be, I'll be okay. And in our pursuit of these things, we frequently leave God out of the equation or we include him in a smaller way. We add religion to our lives in order to cover our bases and be well-rounded. We see God's stuff as important, but not immediately necessary in the achievement of our pursuits or to overcome our fears. As I said earlier, in his writings, John seldom separates this present life from the eternal life. Yet, in our, it is our frequent mistake to divorce these two lives. We have life now and life then. And we as believers know that this life isn't all there is. We know there's an eternal life to come. However, though we know it, we don't always show it by our actions. We seek comforts in this life that are not necessarily bad above serving Christ. Example, parents wanting their kids to be successful or fulfilled without even thinking, well, what does God want for my kid's life? Career choices based on financial security alone and not, hey, is this what God wants me to do with the talents he's given me? relationships founded on mutual attraction alone and not thinking, is this the person God wants me with? 
In all these things, the question must be asked, are we fulfilling the role God has for us? Or are we seeking to overcome our fears in this life by having life work on our terms? You see, like he did for his disciples, Jesus declares to you and to me that true life is found only in him. The things I mentioned earlier are noble things. It's, it's, it's noble to pursue a, a career. It's noble to pursue relationships. The danger is, is when our fear causes us to make them our sole pursuits. The problem is that like the disciples, we can easily build our lives around overcoming fear through the achievement of what we want. And all the while, Christ is beckoning us to consider the pursuit of them in light of who he is and his plan for us, that he is the way to true life. Beloved, John is clear that this life and the life to come are not separate lives. This life with its pursuits are to be so intertwined with our understanding of eternity that they mesh into one interwoven life. Does your life now look like this? Does your life now declare to the world that there's a life beyond this one? Or does it reflect a pursuit of that, of that which will comfort us and achieve the things we want and overcome the fears we have? Now, friend, you may be here today, and you're in the same boat as the rest of us. You're looking for life in this present life, only you have no regard for eternity because you had no idea there was any other way to look at it. For the majority of people in this room today who have taken that initial step towards this true life by trusting in Christ, the discussion we've had today is that true lie on true life has been about rejecting a life that seeks to avoid fear and achieve comfort and replace it with a desire to make this life count for eternity. But there may be some of you here today who've never taken that initial step. For you, Jesus' words of being the way to true life means that you need to reject the notions of attaining God's favor or presence through your own efforts. Again, in that haunted house, I did nothing. I simply held my father's hand, and honestly, I didn't even do that. Once I put my hand to my dad, he took care of the rest, because in my fear, I'm like trying to get away. Dad's got that grip. He wasn't about to let me go for a second in a place because he knew I was terrified. He, no matter what, was going to make sure that I got out of that, out of that house safely. That's the gospel, guys. When you trust to be true that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's God, just like he says, and that he did what the Bible says he did, that he died for your sins, was buried, and rose again, you have placed your hand in the Father's hand. And he's got it. You see, here's the thing. This isn't the first time that John records a story like this. In John chapter 10, 27 through 30, let me read it for you. He says, telling his disciples, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. You see, when you put your faith in Christ, you've put your hand in your Father's hand. And it's not about you holding on, it's about Him holding on. He's not going to let you go. And this life is like this. We, we put our faith in Jesus. We put our hand in the Father's. He's leading us through some very scary things in this life. Doctor's notes, 
parents' death, children failing. All these things are happening. Job losses. And we're just holding on to the Father's hand, sometimes with our eyes closed, trusting that He knows the way, and He does. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what the gospel is. It's not earning anything. It's no list of virtues. It's nothing but you putting your hand in the Father's hand by trusting in Jesus, who He says He is, and doing He did what the Bible says He did. Friends, Jesus offers salvation to all who trust in Him. Will you place yourself in those hands today? Friends, Jesus offers a life that is abundant if you'll trust in Him and, and just let Him lead the way through the haunted house. You'll get through it because He's with you there. Matthew tells us that He'll be with us all the days, even to the end of the age. Friends, are you going to, will you cast off these ideas of trying to overcome your fears of life by your own merit and your own abilities and your own things and just trust that your Father knows these things and He's with you this whole time? Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the truths contained in your word. Thank you, Lord, for letting us see in this story the fear of these men who followed you. They followed you for three years and served you faithfully, and they learned from you, and they didn't get you all the time, but they followed, and they made mistakes, but you encouraged them. And Lord, thank you for helping us see that they had fear. Lord, because we have fear too. Lord, we stand before you as men and women who worry about day-to-day things. We worry about everything. We worry about how we're going to get through this life. Are you going to take care of us? Are you going to provide for us? Are you, are you going to do this? Are, are you really somebody to be trusted? God, if you just turn on the floodlights, we'll, we'll trust you more. And Lord, all the while, you're there holding our hand, telling us it's okay, step by step. Father, Lord, I pray that you would make us a men a group of men and women who grab onto your hand and we let you lead, even in fear. We're not going to be confident. We're not going to be bold. We can't be. But we are going to be like second grade me holding onto my dad's hand. I just trust you. And I know I'm going to get through whatever you, whatever's in front of me because I trust you because you're a good God. God, I pray for those in this room today who don't know your Son and Savior. Lord, they they need to take that initial step of trusting to be true that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what the Bible says he did, that he conquered death. Lord, our greatest fear. And now we put our faith in Christ. We don't fear death because you, you rose him from the dead. And there is no longer fear in death because death has been defeated. So Lord, now I pray that you would take your word And may your Holy Spirit do whatever he wants to do in our hearts. Change us, strengthen us, encourage us, break our hearts, convict us, do whatever it takes so that when we leave here, we're more like your son Jesus than we are right now. And we pray this all in your son's great name. Amen.